So we're looking at Matthew chapter 19, and we'll start at verse 16. It says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep, commandment, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will the rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Well, I think when it comes to people uh, in, in our culture outside of those who are followers of Jesus, I think there's three main types of people. Um, on the one hand, you have people who are on this road of seeking success. And, and these people kind of have this naive optimism that the reason that maybe they're not satisfied or the reason that there's kind of an emptiness in their soul is because they haven't arrived yet. And so they have this idea that if I'm successful, if I accomplish what I want to accomplish, then I'll be satisfied and this emptiness that's in my soul will be filled. And so people try to satisfy that hole in their heart a number of different ways. It could be by, you know, coming to a place in your life where maybe you're financially secure that, you know, I don't have to worry about money anymore. And, and once I don't have to worry about money anymore, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll have what I need. Or, or maybe it's just kind of reaching the pinnacle of your career that I, when I get to a place in my life where I'm at the top of where I want to be at, then I'll be satisfied. Then everything will be, be good. Or maybe it's a relationship that we're looking for. It's like when, when I get married, then, then I'll be satisfied. Then, then I'll feel like my life has purpose. Or when I have children, then I feel like my life has purpose. And so people have different goals. And so you have a group of people that are like on this road to success. They haven't arrived yet. And they feel like if I arrive, if I keep working hard, when I accomplish what I want to accomplish, then I'll be satisfied. I'll be uh, fulfilled. And I think that's where a majority of people have been throughout our country's history. In our Declaration of Independence, we have uh, that we're given the right to life, liberty, and what the pursuit of happiness. That we can pursue happiness doesn't mean that we'll find it, but that we can pursue it. And it's this idea that if you accomplish something, if you achieve something, that maybe you can have happiness. So that's kind of where some people are in our culture, that it's like, you know, I'm on this road to success, and when I get there, then I'll be happy, then I'll be satisfied. And then you have this kind of new group, new group that's kind of emerged in the last 70 years. And this new group of people have believed that success is not really worthwhile, that it's not really worthwhile to seek to accomplish anything. 
So back in 1953, 2% of men... Uh, were not employed and were not looking for employment. So, in other words, 98% of men were either employed or uh, looking for employment. That number today, it's around, uh, I've seen estimates as high as 30% of men who are uh, unemployed, not looking for work. I think probably it's closer to 11 to 15%, but the number has grown exponentially. And there's a lot of different reasons that we can debate why this is. Um, but clearly, Many people in our culture have gotten to this point where they feel like it's not worthwhile to achieve something. It's not worthwhile to put forth the effort to try to achieve what the world says we should achieve. Uh, Senator Marco Rubio wrote an article this past Labor Day which included these statements. He said, last year there were 7 million men missing from the labor force and 10 million total without work. As the scholar Nicholas Eberstadt points out, this means the share of American men without work today is as great as it was during the depths of the Great Depression. Depression levels of non-work for American men are leading to social breakdown all around us. A record 49,000 people took their lives in our country last year, and four-fifths of the dead were men. I mean, isn't that incredible? Similar rates of non-work than during the Great Depression. I mean, we don't think about it that way, but it's incredible when you think about those numbers. And of course, it's not just men. It's, it's, it's many people in our culture who feel like this pursuit of accomplishment, this pursuit of success, it's just not worth it. And so rather than doing the things that our culture has said, you know, are worthwhile to pursue, you know, they're given to doing things like video games or pornography, dabbling drugs and alcohol. And it's a great tragedy as, as many people just have no hope. They feel like there's nothing worth fighting for. So that's the second group. And then the third group that you have in our culture is people who have arrived, people who are successful, who have accomplished things. But then they get there and they realize it's not as satisfying as they thought it would be. The Beatles star, Paul McCartney, said this, it seems to me that no matter how famous you are, no matter how accomplished or how many awards you get, you're always still thinking there's somebody out there who's better than you. I'm often reading a magazine and hearing about someone's new record, and I think, oh boy, that's going to be better than me. It's a very common thing. The interviewer then asked, but Sir Paul McCartney, you have had success in so many dimensions of music. You really feel a competitive insecurity with somebody else that's coming out with a record? He replied, unfortunately, yes. I should be able to look at my accolades and go, come on, Paul, that's enough. But there's still this little voice in the back of my brain that goes, no, 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 you could do better. This person over here is excelling. Try harder. It still can be a little bit intimidating. So many have this belief that when I arrive, when I'm successful, then I'll be satisfied. Then that will be enough for me. But then the people who get there, the people who are successful, they get there and realize it's not all it's cracked up to be. I mean, you see it with people who win the Super Bowl. Play, NFL players that win the Super Bowl. They think that like once they win a Super Bowl, that's going to be the, the, the top, the highlight of their life. And then everything else is going to be gravy after that. And they get there, and they realize it just doesn't satisfy like they thought it was. I was watching this documentary um, last week about um, the University of Florida, and it was called Swamp Kings on Netflix. An interesting story if you're into football. But in the story, it tells the story of Urban Meyer and how he came to the University of Florida, and he just had this incredible passion and drive to be successful and to win at all costs. And so he installed this incredible work ethic into his players, 
and they bought into it, and he was successful. And so they won uh, the national championship for the first time in decades in 2006. You'd think that would be like a real accomplishment. You'd think that he would be satisfied with that, but he wasn't. The moment that, he went, that, he, he, that they won that game, he got this drive within himself that he's like, we got to be winning like every year. And if they didn't win a national championship, it was like they had failed. And so they didn't win in 2007. They ended up winning in 2008 again. And he got to a point in his life where he describes in the documentary that um, the confetti is still flying. Everyone's celebrating. Everyone's just going nuts in the locker room. And he goes into his office, locks the door, and he's calling players for the next year. One of his staffers came up to him and was angry with him and said, you got to just enjoy this moment. And he said, he, he said this to him. He says, we've got to get these recruits. 08's gone. We're on to 09. I, I mean, how sad is that, that he couldn't even enjoy that little tiny success for even a moment that while everyone else is celebrating, he's looking to the next goal. So there's three people in life, three different types of people, people who are seeking success, haven't found it, people who have given up on this idea of finding success or accomplishing anything, and people who have kind of reached the pinnacle of what they could accomplish and realize it's not all that's cracked up to be. I think as we look at these different types of people, I think that this man in this story that we're looking at today falls into the latter camp. He's successful. He's achieved any, everything that, from a human standpoint, that you'd want to achieve. It says in the text that he's rich. He didn't have to worry about where his next meal was going to come from. It, it says in, in uh, the uh, text that he was young. So he didn't have to worry about the infirmities of aging. He didn't have to deal with uh, just the pain and difficulties of aging. It says in the Gospel of Luke, not in Matthew, but in Luke, it says that he was a ruler. He had significant authority. And so he has everything that you could ever imagine that someone would want. He's got youth. He's got wealth. He's got authority. Those are the things that people seek in this world most often. And yet there's something missing. And so he senses that, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? He senses that even with all that he had, that there's something missing. And Jesus responds, and he says, why do you ask about what is good? There's only one who is good. And I think in saying this, I think Jesus is trying to get him to see the folly of his achievement. And Jesus says, you know, keep the commandments. He needs to keep the commandments. And the young man responds and says, okay, which ones? Now, this was kind of an understandable question because there were hundreds of laws in the Old Testament, hundreds of different rules. And so he's asking Jesus, okay, which ones are most important for me to keep? And Jesus responds and says, okay, you know, you, know, you know the law. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. I mean, just kind of basic stuff, right? And why does Jesus say these things? I, I think that he says these things to kind of talk about kind of general morality. To kind of give this, this idea of kind of a general morality that, like, these are the things that, like, most people would say makes someone a decent person. Think about it this way. I think what Jesus is doing is, is imagine that someone comes up to you and says, I want to be like Michael Jordan. Now, if someone came up to you and you said that, you'd probably say to them, well, you, maybe you need to set your bar, like, a little bit lower. 
mean, there's only one Michael Jordan. There would probably never be anyone quite like him again. So maybe you need to set your bar a little bit lower than that, and, and you're not going to become Michael Jordan. But if you want to become a good basketball player, there's things you can do. You can dribble, practice dribbling. You can practice jumping. You can practice shooting. You can work out. And if you do those things, you can become a good basketball player. And I think that's, in essence, what Jesus is saying. He's like, okay, there's only one who's good, God alone. You, you can't become like him. But if you want to be just like a general moral person, if you want to accomplish something in that sense, like keep the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't, um, don't bear false witness. And I, I think that he gives these specific commands because, again, they're kind of a statement of general morality. I mean, you could have people who are not even believers, don't even follow God, and most people would generally agree to these kind of things. It's good not to murder. It's good not to lie. We should treat each other as, as we would want them to be, treat, want to be treated. Many people in our culture have this idea that, you know, if we want to get to heaven, then we have to do good things, like good works are what get us to heaven. Um, even Christians, many Christians believe this. There's a poll that was done by Arizona Christian University that found that 52% of people who would call themselves Christians believe that you go to heaven by doing good works or by being a good person. And many of these and others you know, would, might say, well, I've never murdered anybody. I try not to lie. I try to be a generally good person, and so I should go to heaven. And I think that's where this person, this, this man was. He was in this mindset, like, i got to do good things. If I do good things, then I'll get to heaven. And so Jesus gives this to him and gives him these commands to try to point him towards his need. Of course, he's not saying that, yeah, he has to commit, do all these commands, and if he does them, he's going to inherit eternal life in that sense. He's trying to get them, him to realize he's missing something. See, th this man, he says, I've, I've done all these things. Another uh, parallel passage says, I've, I've done them since my youth. Like, I, I kept all these commands. I don't bear false witness. I don't murder. I commit adultery. I try to do generally the right thing. And Jesus doesn't disagree with them. He doesn't say, no, you, you, you failed here. I mean, he's generally a good person in that sense. He's accomplished things in, our, in his life. And at this point, it could be the end of the story, right? I mean, this rich young ruler asked Jesus these questions. Jesus says, okay, this is what you need to do. He says, all right, I've done it. Jesus doesn't disagree with him. He, this could have been the end of the story. He could have walked away satisfied. But he knows there's something missing. Like, I've done all these good things, but there's something missing. So, why, so what Jesus says is, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. That's what you're missing. That's what you're lacking. Why does Jesus say this? Why does he give him this command? Because this isn't a command that's given in the, in the scriptures. It's not that he gave this command to everyone, that everyone who follows Jesus has to sell all that they have and give it to the poor. So why does he give this command to this individual? Well, as we look at this list of commandments that Jesus reiterates to this rich young ruler, there's something that's missing. What's missing? The greatest commandment, to love your lo the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In fact, there's no record of any, uh, any command about loving God at all. It's all about morality, about general morality. And I think what Jesus is trying to get, to see, to get this young man to see is that you've been trying to be a moral person, and you're missing something. You're missing a love for God. 
that you've done all of these good things, you're a generally good person, but you don't love God. Throughout the history of the church, people have kind of struggled with how to apply this passage to their life. A very small minority of people would say like, that this applies to everyone uh, in the same sense that it applied to this man, that all of us should sell all of our possessions and give them to the poor and that we should just kind of live a communal lifestyle. A very small minority of people have said that. Other people have said that throughout history that this is what it takes to be a perfect Christian, uh, that you could just be kind of a, a lower class of Christian, and then if you're going to be a perfect class of Christian, then you sell all you have and give it to the poor and follow Jesus in that way. And, and so throughout history, you've seen different orders and different monastic movements where people have kind of separated from society, sold their possessions, and kind of lived in a community. And then the th third group of people have said that this was a specific command for him because he had a specific problem with money. And I think as we look at this passage, I think that's where I would land. And it's, but it's not just a problem with money. He has a problem with God. It's not simply that he liked, good, liked uh, the wealth and possessions. Of course, he did. But he doesn't love God, and that's shown by his response. I mean, he, he has everything. He's rich. He's young. He's a ruler. And how does the passage end? He leaves grieving. He should be leaving rejoicing, having all those things, being a moral person, having everything that the world would say is important. But he leaves grieving. Because selling his possessions, what Jesus is asking him to do, it's more than just having a yard sale. It means giving up everything that mean, it, it is to be who he is. That all of his efforts, all of his energy, all of who he is, is built upon his possessions, his accomplishments, his stuff. And Jesus is asking him to leave all of that behind. And that's why Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Meaning it's impossible without God. Because when you're rich, when you have possessions, you feel like you don't need anyone else. You feel like you have it all together. You feel like this intoxication uh, that, that comes from having accomplishments. But when we come into the kingdom of God, we realize that our accomplishments don't matter. See, if he understood what it was like in the kingdom of God, he would be like, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Jesus says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. The apostle Paul puts it in his own words when he says this, but whatever gain... I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. See, if he was going to enter into the kingdom of God, he would leave his possessions behind, but he wouldn't leave grieving, he would leave with joy. See, he leaves this place grieving, holding on to his possessions, but if he would have let those possessions go to follow Christ, he would have experienced joy. Going back to the illustration of the person who wants to become like Michael Jordan. You know, you tell them, okay, you need to work on dribbling, you need to work on shooting, you need to work on uh, working out, you need to scrimmage, you need to do all these things. Now, as I think about those things, I've done all those things. I've practiced shooting baskets, 
I've practiced dribbling. I've worked out. But I'm not very good at basketball. I'm pretty bad at basketball. Part of the reason is I'm short. But I'm just not that good at basketball as it is. But I've done all those things. But what's the difference? The difference is I've never really devoted myself to basketball. Basketball is not my game. I like to play it once in a while. But I'm not, I'm not in love with basketball. My thing growing up, I, I was into hockey. And so I like devoted all my time to playing hockey. And so the thing that kind of separates someone who maybe becomes a really good basketball or player or really a great basketball player, they have to really love the game. They need to have that drive for competition. And you look at someone like Michael Jordan, and I'm going to step on some toes here, but I don't think there will be anyone like Michael Jordan, even LeBron or Kobe. But there's one thing that separated him. He just loved the game. He had a passion for winning. And so it caused him to do crazy things, like he had this breakfast club that he called. And he planned on doing it for like 30 days, but he ended up doing it for like 15 years. And he would have a few teammates that would come to his house, and they would work out every day from 5 to 7 a.m. before they went to practice. Before they even got to practice, they would work out for two hours. Now, he didn't have to do that. It wasn't required. It wasn't in his contract. He wasn't doing it begrudgingly. He did that because he loved the game so much. And the game and that competition uh, gave him the desire to do that. When the Holy Spirit gets a hold of a heart, there's no cost that's just too great. If the Holy Spirit would have gotten a hold of this man's heart, he would have said, okay, I got this call to follow Jesus, and I got all this stuff. I'm leaving it all behind. I mean, look at what happened with the other disciples. I mean, Matthew, the tax collector, he's you know there, and Jesus says to him, come follow me, and he says, all right. Gets up, leaves his tax collector booth behind. He didn't have to. He wasn't doing it begrudging like, like oh, I don't know if I want to do this. He comes to Peter and James and John, they're fishing, and they're just like, okay, I'm leaving my life behind because I found something so much greater. And so if we're going to enter into the kingdom of God, we need to realize that it's something that brings joy to our heart. And yes, we let some things go, but we find a greater joy. And so those who come into the kingdom of God must be born again, must have a new mindset, and must become like a child. So I think this has some application for those who maybe are not believers, who have maybe never entered into a relationship with Jesus, that you know, there's this requirement that we need to leave some things behind. It doesn't necessarily mean selling all that we have, but it means leaving our old life behind and embracing the life that God has for us. But I think this passage has more to say to us as well. I'll be honest, as I was looking through this passage and I knew this passage was coming. Last week was just kind of a tough message. It was a tough to some tough topics. And I was looking and thinking about this passage. I'm like, I just don't want to preach this passage this week. I mean, it just seems too hard. Uh, it just seems like it's just so, you know, simple. It just seems like um, it's a salvation kind of thing. I just don't want to preach this passage. And then I'm thinking, like, would anybody notice if I just skipped over this passage? But then I started studying it. And I feel like God just wrecked me with this passage. And I felt like God was saying to me, no, it's not just for someone who doesn't know me. It's for you too. See, as a church, as a people, we've come together in our mission, as Mike reiterates each week, is to genuinely love God 
and authentically love people. That's from Jesus. He said, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So that's who we are. That's who we're to be. But I think there's this reality that sometimes our busyness and our desire to accomplish prevents us from doing those things. Prevents us from loving God and loving people. See, this rich young ruler, he was a doer. He was an accomplisher. He's saying, what must I do? How can I accomplish it? How can I achieve what I want to achieve? How can I get to this goal of eternal life? And I think as a culture, we're culture that's busy. But busyness is not just simply the number of things that we have on the calendar. I think busyness is also a mindset as well. I mean, there's some things that, like, unequivocally, we have to do. Like, we, you know, we have to go to work to provide for our families, or we might need to take our kids from here to there. There's some things, like, unequivocally, we have to do. But I think busyness is not just about how much stuff we have on our calendar. It's about a mindset as well. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes I think we're afraid of not being busy. And I know this is true for myself as well, because sometimes, like, if I'm doing something, if I'm busy, then I feel like I'm worthwhile and valuable. Like, if I'm accomplishing something, then I'm worthwhile, then I'm valuable. And this can lead us to some really dangerous places. The Desert Fathers, uh, James Houston notes that the Desert Fathers, a protest movement against worldliness in the early church, spoke of busyness as, quote, moral laziness. Busyness can also be an addictive drug, which is why its victims are increasingly referred to as workaholics. Busyness acts to repress our inner fears and personal anxieties as we scramble to achieve an enviable image to display to others. We become outward people, obsessed with how we appear rather than inward people, reflecting on the meaning of our lives. I, I think that we have a problem with bu busyness and this incessant desire that we have to be accomplishing something. Why is it that when sometimes maybe we read our Bible, we spend time with God praying, and then we get up from that place and we're like, now I got to go get something done. Now I get to get to the real work. Like, I did my duty, I prayed, I read my Bible, spent some time with God, now I got to go do something. Why do sometimes, like, we feel good about projects that we accomplish. Maybe that's a project around the house or some other task. Maybe something at work. But then spending time with people either feels like an indulgence, like I should be working, or in an interruption, like I got to get back to what I'm supposed to be doing. Why does it feel so accomplishing to do something, you know, to accomplish some task? Why does it feel so satisfying, but not as satisfying to maybe spend time with our kids? Why does worshiping with God's people sometimes feel like an inconvenience? If our goal in life is, number one, to love God, and number two, to love people, then why so often do we feel like these other things are what really satisfy us? That these other things are what needs to, to happen above all else? Should we not prioritize time with God and other people above everything else? But we have this culture that we're addicted to busyness in the sense of accomplishment. And again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have goals, that we shouldn't try to accomplish anything. But as we have those goals, they need to be centered around the primary goals of our lives, to love God and love people. 
If our little goals, if our little accomplishments are not leading to those bigger purposes of loving God and loving people, then we're wasting our lives. And how often do we do things in our life that are just a waste? We feel like we're doing something that matters and we're neglecting something that's greater. Sometimes it's neglecting a relationship with God or neglecting time with God's people or the people that God has put in our, our lives. When the disciples hear what Jesus says, they are just dumbfounded. One commentary that I was reading translates the word that they were flabbergasted. And this doesn't make any sense to them. Now think about it. Just before this, we didn't look in depth at, at this passage, but a little child comes up to Jesus, and Jesus accepts him. And so a little child who has nothing comes to Jesus, and then this rich man comes to Jesus. Now, the rich in Jesus' day were thought to be people who were blessed by God. They had possessions because they were good moral people, that they honored God. And this rich man comes, and Jesus essentially, he steers him away. I mean, he gives him this invitation, but the man turns away. And disciples are probably thinking in their mind, like, why wouldn't Jesus accept him in? He accepts children, but then there's this guy that has all these possessions, all this authority. He could do so much for the kingdom of God. And he lets them walk away. And then Jesus says, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And the disciples are thinking, well, if it's hard for the rich, like what hope is there for us? I mean, if the rich are the ones that are blessed by God, what hope is there for us? And of course, Jesus tells them that there's no hope except for through the power of the Holy Spirit, that with God, all things are possible. And then Peter asks another insightful question. He says, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And notice what Jesus says, that anything, anybody who has followed Jesus, who's left anything behind, they'll receive back a hundredfold what they put in. Which means, I mean, that's an incredible return on investment, which means they'll be rich. Anyone who leaves anything behind to follow Jesus will have eternal life, which means they'll be young. And for the disciples who followed after Jesus, there's the promise of them sitting on 12 thrones, that they'll be rulers. And the promise is the same for us, and not exactly in the same way, but that, you know, we're, it says that we're going to judge the angels. And so their destiny, even though they're leaving something behind on this earth, their de destiny is to become rich, perpetually young, and to rule with Christ. And so they're not leaving anything behind in following after Jesus. And, and the promise extends to us as well. Those who are believers are promised eternal life, incredible wealth in heaven with God, and an opportunity to spend forever with Jesus reigning with him. And we sometimes look at this passage and we think, man, this is something, it's really hard what Jesus asked this man to do. I mean, it's really hard for him to, to ask this man to leave everything behind and in a sense, that's true, but it's also an invitation of incredible grace. You have this guy who's addicted to this idol of accomplishment, achievement, and possessions. He's intoxicated by these things, and he knows in his heart that they don't satisfy. And Jesus gives them an invitation and says, you don't have to live like this anymore. And for him, it had to be a complete break. Not just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to change my priorities. No, he's got to just leave that life behind.
And so to this man who had this idol of accomplishment that I don't need to always be doing, I need to earn my salvation, I need to prove myself, Jesus says, leave it behind. Come follow me. Where was Jesus headed? He's headed to the cross where Jesus is going to accomplish what this man could never accomplish for himself. That he's going to do what is impossible by human standards. And so he gives him this incredible invitation, leave your accomplishments behind and come watch me accomplish what you could never accomplish on your own. And I think the same thing is true for us as believers as well. We can give up our neurotic busyness, our desire to become something or become someone, and we can rest in who God is for us. We can rest in his finished work on the cross, that Jesus is enough for us. And then we can simply do what we're made to do. We can love God and we can love people. And ironically, when we do that, when our priorities are in place, God often accomplishes incredible things through us. That as we seek his kingdom and his righteousness, all the other things are added to us. But we seek Christ. We seek to love him. We seek to love God's people. And as we do that, God's like, okay, I'm going to do some incredible things through you. And so as believers, we can rest from the need to accomplish because of what Jesus accomplished at the cross. But sometimes it means giving up some things. There's a great missionary named David Livingston. He was a missionary to Central Africa. And at that time, there was, uh, it was really uncharted lands. He was a missionary from 1840 to 1873 when he passed away. And as he was entering into this one particular region, there was this large area that was governed by this tribal chieftain. And so he was going to meet with this tribal chieftain, but there was the tr this tradition that there had to be an exchange that occurred before uh, the chieftain would meet with him. And so Livingston didn't have many possessions. He had like a Bible, a watch. Um, he had a goat because uh, he had some stomach problems and couldn't drink the water. Had just a few possessions. And he comes and he, he lays those things out. To his dismay, the chieftain wanted the goat, which was incredibly important to him. And in return, the chieftain took this stick, carved stick, looked like a walking stick, and he handed it to him. Livingston was just beside himself. He's like, giving up my goat, and I get this stupid walking stick. But then one of the locals explained to him, he said, that's not a walking stick. It's the king's very own scepter. And with it, you'll find entrance to every village in our country. And he says, the king has honored you greatly. And he was right. God granted him uh, a great audience in Central Africa, and missionary after missionary came after, after him, and many people came to know Christ. But it started with him giving up something. And if we're going to be people who God uses in mighty ways, maybe we need to give up something, something that's valuable to us. And as we give up those things and say, God, I want to follow you, I want to follow you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I've given up my desire to be someone, to accomplish someone. As we follow after him, he's like, okay, I'm now you're ready for me to do something through you. Now you're ready for me to use you to really accomplish something of significance. We can rest. We can rest in Christ. We can rest from this desire to accomplish because Jesus has already accomplished everything for us. 
And as we rest in Him, we love God, love people, and He uses us for His glory. Offer Jeff Gorsuch puts it insightfully this way. He says, the question to ask at the end of life's race is not so much, what have I accomplished, but whom have I loved, and how courageously. That's what this man is missing. He's accomplished many things, but he hasn't found love. He hasn't found that driving passion in his life that would lead him to leave everything behind and for joy follow after Jesus. May we have that same, may we have that passion to follow after him with all of our hearts. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your incredible love for us, that you sent your only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us. We thank you that your son accomplished everything for us. We know that there isn't a good thing that we can do to enter into heaven, that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags before you, that we could be generally moral, good people in a sense, but we all fall short. We could never measure up but that you came to the earth, lived a sinless life, and died on the cross, accomplishing what we could never accomplish on our own. Lord, help us to live our lives in light of the cross. Help us to realize that you are enough for us. And as, as we realize that you're enough for us, we know that we will be driven to love you, that we will be driven to work, to love your people. But we won't be doing it because we feel like we have to do it to be valuable. We will be doing it because we really truly love what you love. And that we know that as we do so, you're going to say, now you're ready. Now you're ready for me to use you. Lord, help us, help me to never come to a place where I'm too busy to do what you've called me to do. Help me to come to a place in my life where I'm never too busy to spend time with you. Help me to come to a place in my life where I'm never too busy to spend time with my family, to spend time with your people. Lord, we want to love you. We want to love your people. And by your Holy Spirit, transform us. Give us that passion and that desire for you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.